Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. On May 14, 2022, a group of Pamiris, the people of Tajikistan's eastern Gorno-Barakshan Autonomous Oblast, or Kabal, went to the city administration in Harog, the regional capital. The group informed authorities of plans to hold a public meeting two days later to call for several local officials to be dismissed and for the release of locals being held in connection with protests that occurred in late 2021. Their advance request to hold a meeting was fully in accordance with Tajikistan's laws. When people started to assemble on May 16th, they were met by police and security forces who fired rubber bullets and tear gas at them. Tajik authorities then started a brutal campaign of repression against the people of Gabal that has seen dozens of Pamiris killed, more than 100 imprisoned, and over the course of the last year, the systematic destruction of the Pamiri culture in Gabal. With the anniversary of the May events approaching, we take a closer look at what happened then, what has happened since then, to Gabal and its people. To discuss all this, I am joined by Suzanne Levy-Sanchez, visiting scholar at Harvard's Davis Center, who spent many years in the mountainous areas of Tajikistan and Afghanistan, and is the author of the book, Bridging State and Civil Society, Informal Organizations in Tajik, Afghan, Badakhshan. And Bakhtiar Safarov, founder of the Central Asia Consulting Firm in the United States of America, who is originally from the Gabal region of Tajikistan. So thank you both for joining me. And Bakhtiar, I, I want to start with you. You're watching events in Gabal closely. What is the daily life like for the people living there right now? Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruce. Thank you f- uh, for inviting. And uh, I want to greet you and uh, Dr. Susie. Thank you for invitation. And I want to greet your listeners as well. So uh, the daily situation, uh, as, uh, as we get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, reports, it's, it's, it's not obviously not as used to be people, my understanding that they were not expecting uh, such turn in the events because, you know, like usual, they came, protested, they get, you know, the, the steam out and then went back. But the life was ongoing. People like, you know, youth or whoever went protest came back and the life was normal pretty much. Right now, what we see is uh, people are, are more worried uh, on their day-to-day life and we see reports uh, starting from you know obviously restriction a lot of freedoms they cannot go to you know do any protests so we see there is uh, not obviously active social media from the ground and we, we, we hear a lot of you know property illegal seizures so a lot of a lot of uh, issues like uh, you know but we see more more concerns regarding the like for example deployment of cctv cameras you know that in and that's now will be installed or i think they're already installed in in horror and uh, stuff like that's like new 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 initiatives that coming from a governor now they have this uh, this groups called explanatory work among youth so this kind of squads they go village to village and explain people that you know hey uh you know you don't do that you don't this they call them the people squads so stuff like that these are new things that's coming uh obviously they don't have access to speak to uh, different people that they used to be the NGO. so yeah they basically it's uh it's a new reality i can say that 
Okay, uh, thank you, Bakhtiar. Um, Suzanne, um, I'm going to get to you that you you know you've had long experience with this region. It, it has been what was commonly described in many reports as a restive region in eastern Tajikistan, uh, and yet th- what happened after you know after May 16th last year was uh, seems to have been uh, much more brutal and intense than than the usual kind of violence. Can you kind of walk us through uh, what happened starting at, at, you know, on May 16th, just before, and then what happened after to let our audience know how, how significant this was and that it was much, uh, much, as I said, much more intense than previous violence in the region. Thank you, Bruce, for having me. It's uh, good to um, virtually see you, Bakhtiar. It's an honor to be here today. So, uh, there was a, a planned protest in accordance with Tajik law on May 16th. I think from what I've read, reports of over a thousand people uh, showed up from the community. The government uh, fired on them with rubber bullets and they used tear gas. And then soon after that, they killed first on May 22nd, Commander or Colonel Mahmoud Bokir, who was a local uh, leader of the people. They then proceeded to kill two other local leaders in June. And right after that, they started arrests and there were mass arrests in June of that year and late May. Hundreds of people fled the country and there were there's reports of anywhere between 40 and 67 people that were killed. There was also a protest it, it, soon after the May 16th protest, when Tajik vehicles were coming to Harok to crack down in Roshan, which is a neighboring district, and the Tajik security services fired them on people who were blocking the road. And soon after that, they also killed a local leader, Yodgar, from the area, as well as his associates, and then arrested his family members. From there, they proceeded to arrest leaders from the neighboring Porshnev as well. And I think that there have been, as you say, restive occurrences or issues between the locals and the government, 2008, 2012, 2014, 2018. But you're correct, Bruce, this was markedly different. It was in the past, once the conflict was sort of ended, there were generally negotiations between civil society leaders and the government. And while arrests here and there continued, and usually there were some blacklists, and it wasn't great, but there wasn't mass surveillance and mass crackdowns and, and, and arrests. After this one, the government continued to basically attack the leaders in the community at all levels. So they started by killing certain leaders, then they arrested journalists, they arrested lawyers, they arrested civil society activists, they shut down NGOs, they curtailed religious practices, they started to seize buildings, they seized business leaders' businesses and arrested them. They even arrested the head of the hospital for Gorno Barakhshan. And so basically they went, they also arrested artists and bloggers who were promoting Pamiri language or even researching it. There was also, I think it's 30 up to 38 now, extraditions of, of Pamiris from Russia. 
back to Tajikistan. At the moment, there are, from what I've heard, over 2,000 Pamiris, primarily men, in prison, which is 2% of the male population. And if you think of that, that's also 2% of the heads of households, which is a huge number. And then allegedly there are, were, I mean, I've actually, I have a report of over 150 people and their bios in prison, but from my sources, I've been told it's over 300 that have been arrested since November. And I think about 50 after May. And then what there is, is a, a trickle of arrests of about four to five per month of leaders or even potential leaders for the community. So the social fabric. Lastly, I'll just say that, you know, the reasons for it, I can speculate, but, um, you know, the West withdrew from Afghanistan and China very much moved in. And China has very different ideas about control of the region versus either Western institutions and NGOs that were supported there that have been largely shut down or Russian control and support. You know, the Russians often played a dual game. On top of that, Ukraine happened. And so Putin, from what I have gathered from my sources, changed his tune in regard to Rahmon and Rahmon made some requests in exchange Again, this is allegedly in exchange for his support of Putin in Ukraine, and that included these extraditions of certain Pamiri leaders, as well as support for cracking down in Gorno-Badakhshan. It is a strategic crossing point for trade from China, and China did provide, I think it's $9 million in infrastructure funding directly after the killing of both Mohamed Bukhair and Horsandans over in June. So it's it's a combination of local ethnic tensions as well as this international geopolitical um, space. Okay, let me ask you one more question. Um, you know, at the time, the Tajik government blamed uh, the violence on what well, they said there were terrorists, foreign sponsored terrorists or, or terrorists that were working under uh, with aid from some foreign party someone outside Tajikistan. Have you in the last year seen any evidence to support that claim, that there was actually outside interference and the terrorists had gotten loose in Gorno-Badakhshan? No. You know, that's been an on and off claim in various ways over the past, over a decade. And they really trumped up those charges this time. And they, you know, with their anti-terror operation and their big campaign and and, and there's never been any evidence of that. Ismaili Shias are not engaged in either terrorism locally or cross-border terrorism. And it, there, were, there were also trumped up charges of plans to overthrow the government or speak against officials or whatever these charges were. I have all of the articles of, of the charges. And they did shift to much stronger charges by the government after this crackdown versus the ones in the past. And therefore, the prison terms have been much longer um, because there are claims of terrorism. But yeah, there's there's just no evidence of it. Even the recent killing of the two men who crossed the border from Afghanistan or somewhere involved in Yazgalami, you know, Yazgalami, which, which is a different Sunni uh, sect of Pamiris, uh, you know, the evidence on that is pointing more towards something quite different than 
actual drug traffickers breaching the border from the other side. So uh, anyway, does that, I hope that answers that question. Yeah, yeah it does. Thank you very much. Um, can I can please. add, please? please? Yeah. So, and uh, that's a very good point that uh, Susie and, and Bruce, you're making. That's claiming terrorists uh, as, and calling people of Gornabadakshan Autonomous Oblast is, is just the thing that even some Western institution kind of believed in this and fall into this narrative. But now, you know, people, I guess, you know, and I hope they will realize that the people of Gabal basically wanted the rule of law, but any, and like any other nation, but uh, have been blamed for weapon and drug trafficking for years. You know, if you look at the reports, they say, hey, everybody's like that, you know, and they were just talking about the uh, economic hardship, marginalization within the country, you know, range of uh, it's a language issues like they, they, they couldn't, you know, they can't speak their own language, uh, exclusion of exercise, any significant political influence, you know, lack of proper political participations, you know, stuff like that. And, and then most importantly, the governor and all uh, judges and, and all executive are, you know, appointed by, by president of Tajikistan. So these are the things that have been People of Gabal have been saying for 30 years, but unfortunately, they got blamed and some some Western organizations also believe in this narrative. Yeah, that's it for me. Thank you, Bakhtiar. Um, you know, I want to follow up on on some of the what's happening in, in the region right now. With Pamiris uh, mainly are, are Shiite Muslims, uh, to make that distinction clear for the audience. How, is, how easy is it for uh, the Pamiris to actually practice their religion, I mean, you said that it was is more difficult. But can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, you know, what can the, can they go to mosque? Uh, can they can children can people study the religion? I mean, what's the situation? So, uh, I I honestly I I don't know much except for the for the reports that I'm reading that what's happening that in in, in Horog and. Uh, Around that district, that practicing uh, Ismailism, most of the uh, Jamaat Khonas, they call them the prayer mosque. They, they, they like you know, religious facilities are closed now, so they cannot go and uh, and uh, practice their religion and praise there. So the only two uh, active uh, Jamaat Khonas, the, the religious organizations, are one in in Dushanbe and one is in Horok. So it's certainly not enough. And that was uh, uh, another organization called ITREP. It's also uh, related to teaching, you know, Ismailism. That that institution also activities were were, were restricted. And then and then and as you know uh, about the the Khalifa Dawlat Mir, who was uh, who was also jailed just because of he conducted religious ceremonies for uh, people who you know died during this conflict. Thank you. Suzanne, I think you want to add something about Dablat Mirov, do you not? Well, Khalifa Mozaffar Dablat Mirov was arrested on July, I think it's 26th or 25th, and sentenced to five years in prison for engaging in, I think, was he, I think he was arrested for engaging in extremist activity or overthrow the government or something like this. But it was basically, from what I understand, because he performed ablution for Colonel Mahmoud Bokhir, who was killed on May 22nd. 
you know, he was one of the only independent Khalifas in Harok and had been for a long time. I, I met him after he became uh, Khalifa for the area as well as before, when he, he became the Khalifa in 2012, after Imam Nazar, from what I, I think was, was killed around that time. I, I think that it is interesting that the only, and when I say independent Khalifa in Tajikistan at this point, all imams and khalifas are their pensions are paid by the state and they are required to wear state um, outfits and they they no longer have the freedom of religious expression in a sense and so um khalifa mozafar did uh, express some independence of the ismaili religion and he's now in prison and, and I want to add that the practice of religion, uh, the, the Ismaili Shia practice Friday prayers in the home, within the community, and they did have a number of mosques throughout Harok that have been closed, like um, Bakhtiar said. Uh, they're no longer allowed to have pray in the house. I think the women were just told they can't go to the Jama'at Khana in Harok anymore. The Tajik security services are stationed in the mosque itself. Um, they did seize religious books, and Etreb had a wonderful library that I visited many times that the government seized and shut down. They also have um, shut down a number of religious schools, summer camps for children, and they've also stopped any volunteerism within the Jama'at for raising money for the, the community or funerals or weddings or anything else. And the biggest impact on that is that a number of people have had to sell their properties and move to Dushanbe because their heads of households are in prison. And from my sources, the prison situation is that the people in prison are not being fed and there isn't proper medical care. So the families have to support these heads of households that are in prison. And the only way to do that was to sell their properties and move to Dushanbe, which has also been a fairly extreme impact on, on the people there. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, and we have reached the halfway point in our discussion, so it's time for me to remind that this is the Midgley's podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Pinner, host of the Majlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. We're talking about the Tajik government's continuing campaign of repression against the people of Eastern Gorno-Badakhshan Autonomous Oblast and the government's efforts to destroy the Pameri culture. And joining me for this discussion are Bakhtiar Safarov, founder of the Central Asia consulting firm in the United States, who is originally from Gabal region of Tajikistan, and Suzanne Levy-Sanchez, visiting scholar at Harvard's Davis Center, and who spent many years in the mountainous areas of Tajikistan and Afghanistan, and is the author of the book Bridging State and Civil Society in Formal Organizations in Tajik Afghan Badakhshan. Suzanne, uh, I want to come back to you. You know, the Aga Khan uh, Development Network was very active in Gorno-Badakhshan. In fact, they were really kind of the only ones doing anything to, to make any improvements and help the people out there. What's happened to that network since last May? Um, from what I understand is many of the, the majority of projects and programs have been stalled or stopped by the government. 
the government has seized numerous properties of Acadian that they say were not officially transferred in the official manner to them. They are investigating the land agreement of the Serena Hotel in Kharok, which is owned within the Acadian institutions, as well as the Aga Khan Health Services Hospital. The Aga Khan Health Services Hospital was built within UCA because the government of Tajikistan would not uh, grant a lease in another area of Kharok. So the um, Acadian built it within UCA, but because it wasn't properly leased through the government, they are now trying to turn that hospital into a military hospital. And I do want to say, I'm sorry, this is a little bit off topic, but you know, in September, I started a company called Hoof Global LLC with um, Asladeen Sherzamanov after we helped rescue him from where he was. And we have assisted 82 Pamiris from fleeing the country in various well as, as well as fleeing Russia. So the ongoing persecution and fleeing of the people from the region, including those people working for AKDN, is a major issue. The other major issue is the majority of good jobs in the region are with AKDN um, and the Aga Khan Foundation. And since a lot of that has been either shut down or stopped, and those jobs are beginning to disappear, which is going to cause a major issue for the people there because there isn't something to replace them. And the, the businesses and whatnot that were seized by the Tajik government are not employing primarily Pamiris. They're, they're bringing in Tajiks from outside the region, Tajik non-Pamiris, and, and, which is also creating a problem. Thanks. Bakhtiar, I'd like you to speak a little bit about that too, because I've also heard these stories that there uh, a lot of people, a lot of the Pamiris are leaving Badakhshan, uh, whether it's because they can't make a living or, or they fear government repression. Uh, what are you hearing? Yes, yes. Well, I, I heard that like 250 Pamiris now seeking asylum in, uh, in Camp Nuremberg. It was like this report was like maybe two, three months ago, and they had some issues, you know, difficulty with the Pamir language, you know, and Tajik language on translation that that news came in. I'm aware about this. Also, uh, I know I don't have an exact number, but I know a lot of people also resided, came here to United States. Uh, I hear a lot of uh, like news that it's been a, it's been a very hard transition uh, for them as well. So, um, but the, the good thing is that now it was like like a disaster basically people still in shock and people are recovering so we can we we see that a lot of people are you know starting to come show showing back the activist activism like you know during the recent uh, protests in berlin uh, where they were you know that were organized by national alliance of uh, tajikistan uh, for uh, Abdullah Shamsuddin, uh, the the son of Islamic Revival Party, you know, member, and the some people say thirty uh, Pamiri activists in Germany already participated in protests. Some people say hundreds, so the the number is fluctuating. We we don't have an exact number, but yeah, so they they just they just leaving, and now people say that they, you don't see any basically youth in the streets of Gubao anymore. And uh, 
I spoke to one of my sources and they said that they don't even issue passports for people who are in 11th grade, which is kind of senior, senior year. They don't issue them passports anymore. But for, I, I believe it's a fear of maybe them leaving or just they just want to keep them in the country. Okay, so they're not allowed to speak their language. They're not allowed to practice their religion, or they can with, with severe restrictions. The government isn't putting any money into the region, and, and so people are left to their own devices. There have been claims that this amounts to cultural genocide. Suzanne, what do you think? Is that a fair, fair characterization of the situation now? I do think it's cultural genocide. Um, I think it's very difficult to prove those things given the the definition of them. But if you do break it down by all levels of society, language, religion, culture, and even recently, you know, the UN Special Rapporteur for Religion, Religious Belief, I forget the full name of that, but, um, you know, they visited the region and, you know, they said that there's this persecution going on. And then the Tajik government came back and said, we don't recognize Pamiris as an ethnic group. But then if you look on the bots controlled on social media by the Tajik security services, they regularly do speak about Pamiris in often negative ways in terms of them being involved in you know, hooliganism or terrorism or whatever it happens to be. So there's definitely a disconnect between the government's behavior toward the Pamiris and assertions about them, and then the um, government's denial of their identity. So when you think about cultural genocide, it really is a squashing of people's identity, not allowing them to have their own assertion of who they are, their practices and beliefs, their freedom of expression, their freedom of assembly, their freedom of uh, linguistic choices, etc. Education around their religion and their language. So it is going on at all levels. And it does need to be, I think, publicly stated. And the international community needs to recognize it. Uh, Bhakti, are you from there? Does this look like cultural genocide to you? Yeah, exactly. And I agree with what you wrote as well, you know, calling it as a cultural genocide, uh, 100, you know, and that's, and, and that's, and it's, what, what happened is, the local community leaders have been able to kind of tackle it for the last 30 years. But, you know, the whole resources and everything is right now, like I'm, I'm talking on the ground, is depleted. So that's, I, I agree that's now the, the escal- they're going to escalate on this. And uh, there is a fear of population even abandoning the, the homes. You know, that happened in Vange District earlier. You know that you go to the to the villages. You know that's you know like for example in one village across, you know my grandparents' home, that you go it's like forty families already left in Vanji district. And but because it happened towards Vanji people, the whole you know suppression happened earlier. So the people start leaving in like you know ten years, fifteen years. But but now I see that similar situation is going to happen in a. In the areas that's the people from Pamiris, you know, in Shugnan, in Rushan, in Ishkashim, you, I, I, I expect that a lot of people will be leaving to different countries. So that that happens. And speaking about genocide, as you know, the Genocide Watch already put it on stage five. Stage five organization, let me read that. Stage seven preparation, stage eight prosecution. They put it on the on a 
I believe on faith stage five, I have to clarify, but Genocide Watch is also, you know, kind of monitoring the situation as well. So, yeah, I agree with, with it's not cultural genocide, but actual, you know, like physical, uh, physical. Uh, I think for some reason, I think they have a plan basically to, to have certain people either jailed or killed. So to me, that's how it looks like. Could I add one yeah, thing? Please. I I want to say, you know, Hoof Global's work, and I'm not just trying to plug the organization. I want to be clear. You know, it's been really challenging to assist Pamiris fleeing both Russia. We've also rescued out of Ukraine, and we are housing a bunch of people. But the point I'm trying to make on that is that we get calls just about every day, or contacts rather, messages begging for help or assistance of people who are fleeing persecution, who have been visited repeatedly by the security services. So what I think what Bakhtiar says right there is, is I think there have been these purges in other parts of Tajikistan, agreed, but I don't think it's been quite the wholesale, every layer of society purging, as well as the sort of bizarre derogatory statements by security services toward the Pamiris as well as publicly. Okay, thank you. Um, we are running short on time, although I'm quite sure we're going to return to this topic. Uh, you know, both of you are watching the situation there. Uh, you know as much, if not more, than than pretty much anybody else. Bakhtiar, what would you tell people who are trying to get information about this region? Uh, you know, what, what don't they know that they should know? Well, so what they don't know is uh, the Central Asia restricted so many, you know, information and uh, free media that uh, basically they even even us who are from the region don't have enough information so what they what they would do is to to you know to press the government to actually open up the the media organizations to make sure that they have access to to report and and as you can see like you know the Marius Fossum he proposed the targeted Magnitsky style sanction so they should, you know, the the public in the West and other European countries should kind of, you know, tell to to their governments to, you know, step up the the efforts because as you, as we can see, the government to government uh, relations are going strong. Like you know, you see a lot of Western countries, you know, United States, uh, Europe supporting government as as usual. The business is going as usual. But for civil society organization, it's not. So that's what happening. The government becoming stronger and civil society at the same time is pretty much, you know, in, in jail. You know, so they, they should know that. And they, sh- they have to help political organizations and the organization that will be established with, with, with help. You know, that it could be financial. It could be, you know, political because we, we, we expect that uh, Gabao will also have to have some structural legal representation. So we need help with, with you know, consultant. We need help with, uh, you know, financial to make sure that that kind of structure is, is established. And uh, we need to do that because we have a lot of political prisoners. So political prisoners, that's, you know, only Shohyun, the, the, the chairman of the, Supreme Court said they convicted 109 people during his uh, conference la- uh, last month. 
So we don't know exactly how many people right now being jailed. So we need we need a, we need help from from organizations, you know, government, non-government, to start addressing those issues because we 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 can have all all our people being jailed for nothing. It's basically it's just an you literally witnessing the years of 1937 that we had in when we were part of the Soviet Union that people can for nothing they people can come and take you and put you in jail just because they don't like you just because they you know they think they 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 can do that so we have to we have to educate people and i want to thank you Bruce for for you know for doing a lot so on on educating people on, on even with Majlis podcast, I think this is the seventh or eighth that uh, you're hosting, and I'm and and I see a lot of other uh, experts are joining the organization. I have I have hundreds of here uh, that that I already I mean dozens that I already here you know put put up it's like you know uh, Human Rights Watch, International Partnership for Human Rights. Human Rights Watch, that's a Helsinki Foundation, Norwegian Helsinki, Front Right Defenders, Freedom Now, uh, Foreign Policy Center. You know, they, they Mary Lelord, so she did an amazing job on putting a lot of recommendations. Unfortunately, the, I don't see anybody who will start implementing those recommendations. So we have to have some kind of, you know, body or legal entity who will start implementing those recommendations because it's been she's been there in December nothing basically changed so we we want to make sure that the people know that those recommendations exist people expert write a lot but unfortunately nothing is helping and our brothers and sisters even Ufathoni Mamachoa she's the only lady that's being now jailed and nobody uh, can help and 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 we just we just stuck here a stalemate, I would say, at this point. Thank you, Bakhtiar. Uh, Suzanne, last word goes to you. Thanks, Bruce. Bakhtiar, thanks so much for the thorough overview of, of what needs to happen. I agree on every single point. I want to say that in December, the EU and its member states announced the Enhanced Partnership for Co- and Cooperation Agreement with Tajikistan. And one of the things they stipulated is that negotiations depended on, quote, tangible improvements in Tajikistan's human rights situation, including with regard to the freedom of expression, media, and assembly. So my hope is that the international community, including EU and its member states, U.S., and other countries that partner with Tajikistan that believe in freedom of expression, assembly, right um, to association, and um, religious freedom, will tie their monetary support and their cooperation with the country to these basic human rights principles that Tajikistan is actually signed on to with the UN. And I do think there have been so many organizations that have written reports at this point about it. There was a good article in The Diplomat recently, and Minority Rights Group has done excellent work. The rooftop report, if people want to know more about the situation, is an excellent resource. So I I think what people need to know is that the surveillance state that is now installed in Gorno-Barakhshan is similar to that of what is going on with the Uyghurs, 
was largely funded and provided by the Chinese government. And when people get information out from Harok or Gorno Barakshan at this point, it shows a sense of desperation that people should understand because if they get information out, they are literally risking their lives to do so. And so that's how important it is to them. Um, there's also refugee communities, over 300 in Germany. And as Bakhtiar said, they need support. And what people don't know is the um, rules for asylum seeking in these countries are very strict. And the people need financial resources in order to gain legal support and support for translation of documents. There's also a large refugee community at this point in the U.S., as Bakhtiar said. There's, there's a large community in Canada. And there's also a number of people in Moldova and Georgia that are seeking asylum. So there is need for assistance for those people, as well as the international community giving a voice for the Pamiris in fighting for their rights since they're risking their lives to do so. Okay. Thank you very much. As I mentioned, we could, you know, we could talk about this for, for much longer, and I'm sure that we will be coming back to this topic again in, in the very near future. But I do want to thank you both for being on the program. Thank you, Suzanne, and thank you, Bakhtiar. As always, a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjulis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjulis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.